One of the most striking things to me about uh, human nature and something we try to do is how quick we are to try to make connections with other people based upon the things we have in common with them. So, for example, since I've had a child, I've noticed a tendency myself to, whenever I see someone else with a screaming child in a grocery store, to almost flash a picture of my son to say, I've got one of those things that do that too, right? We want to identify with them in the midst of this thing that we have in common. I've also noticed it with sports. I'm a big sports fan. So anytime I see a Cleveland Browns fan, I'm like, there's more than one, right? Like there, there are more than just one of us. This is wild because we don't ever win. It's just kind of crazy. So it's great to see another fan. As a Kentucky Wildcats fan, anytime I see a Kentucky fan, I've got this uncontrollable urge to say, go Cats, which usually results in me actually saying that out loud whenever I see something representing Kentucky with someone else. There's another one, too, that, that I've more so heard about than experienced, but I've heard about this experience whenever uh, someone will see someone else wearing something and they will say something along the lines of, did you get that at Target? And so the other person will respond, yeah, and go on to talk about how great Target is. Uh, again, not something I've experienced very often, but I've seen it in action a time or two. As people, we love to find things we have in common with other people, and we love to, to really relish in that thing that we have in common. And yet, in our culture, there, there's something that we all share in common that we also kind of avoid talking about at all costs. There's a shared experience that we all hit at some point in our life, but we do everything we can not to talk about it. And that's the idea of suffering and death. See, suffering and death touch each and every one of us, but as a culture, we do everything we can to not think about it, to do whatever we can to, to not have that be part of our conversation or even our thinking. And yet all of us fit into one of three categories. We are people who either have suffered who are suffering or who will suffer. If you don't think one of those three uh, describe you, our lead pastor Phil gave me a fourth one, you know someone who fits into one of those categories. Suffering has a way of touching each and every one of our lives, and yet we often try to do everything we can to avoid it. Now, I think there are a couple of reasons why we do that, and they're honestly not terrible reasons. I think for some of us, we avoid talking about pain and suffering because, well, well it's painful, right? It brings up memories from the past that, that you would much rather forget, that you would rather not think about, that you don't want brought up again in front of you. You just do whatever you can not to relive those painful memories, so you don't want to talk about it. I think for others, it's because it's uncomfortable. Maybe your experience with suffering isn't the same as the person you're talking to, so you're afraid that, that it'll get really uncomfortable really quick when you can't maybe fully identify with pain, so then we just avoid talking about it at all. And I think a broader symptom that we have across our whole culture is that, that more so than even uh, having it as something that's painful or something that's uncomfortable, we, we just don't want to think about it, Right? And modern medicine has made it more and more possible for us not to think about suffering and death because that's something that happens elsewhere outside of our homes now. And yet, it's something that touches each of our lives. I know for me, I've struggled for a long time to understand what suffering well looks like. 
I remember whenever I was in high, or really just a teenager throughout that period, I lost both of my grandfathers. And I remember that period. And I remember thinking back and just thinking, okay, how, how can I move on from this, right? How do I move on to the next thing? Like, I don't like this feeling I'm feeling, so I'm just going to move on with life. And so that's what I did. A few years later, in my last semester of undergrad in college, though, uh, suffering hit me in, in a way I didn't really expect. I had a friend who was found dead in his apartment, and it was one of those things where it didn't seem like, like a possibility in my head that that would hit me at that point in my life. And yet, as I started to engage with that moment and that pain, I still found myself uh, approaching it in a fairly stoic way in my heart. And by that, I mean, I was trying to detach myself from the situation. I was trying to push myself away from the pain as much as possible. So I would cling to kind of cliche truths about how God was at work or whatever it was. But oftentimes, those were just statements that were detached from the reality that I experienced. And then there was a couple of years later where that kind of set me on a trajectory where I began to think about that stuff and really uh, more often than is probably natural for someone in my, that was my age at that point. I remember in 2013, I asked for the book Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering for Christmas because I heard it was going to be a great book and it was written by Tim Keller. So I had that book that um, was given to me by my brother-in-law. And then a week and a half later, I went on a delayed honeymoon with my wife and that was the book I brought along to read. Okay, now for some reason, I compartmentalize everything and so it worked great for me. But it was a book that whenever I read, it really was something that as soon as it went to my head, It was an opportunity to be like, oh my goodness, look at this way that God walks with us through suffering. It was a powerful truth-telling book for me that, that really began to shape the way I think about it. But if I'm honest, it was only knowledge that was up in my head. And whenever I read that book, I remember thinking, this is gonna be great for walking alongside someone else when they suffer. But then seven or eight months later, my dad passed away unexpectedly. I still remember uh, the, the days leading up to that. I remember taking my dad from the family doctor to the hospital to get some tests run because they couldn't figure out what was going on. I remember getting into the car, getting ready to leave, to actually come here to Evansville to officiate a wedding for a friend. And then I got a call from my little sister saying that my dad had passed away. And I remember that deep feeling of pain in my heart that that I still don't really have words to describe other than it hurt. And I didn't know what to do with it. But in that season, God began to take those truths about how God is present in suffering. And he took it from my head and began to press it into my heart It's transformed how I face uh, those hard seasons of suffering, but even everyday life now as I've seen God present in the midst of pain. It doesn't take the pain away. August 29th will be six years since my dad has passed away and I already start dreading whenever I know it's coming up. His birthday's here in a week and a half. He was an accountant, so anytime tax season comes around or I'm doing paperwork here at church and it involves like putting some number on a W-2 or something, my first impulse is still call my dad. What number do I put down? And those things hurt. And yet I still have seen God at work. 
And in today's passage, we see a powerful picture of how Jesus engages with our hurts, how he engages even with death in a way that offers hope here and now. I think we should remember something that we learned just a couple of weeks ago from John chapter 9. John chapter 9 was that passage where we met that blind man and we learned something about the presence of suffering in people's lives. We learned that, that, that suffering is in this world because sin and evil entered the world. But it's not always because of personal sin, right, that that, that, that suffering is experienced. But it's because it's now present in the world around us. And today we see how Jesus encounters just that powerful reminder of the effect of sin, death. And we see it in a powerful way as we see Jesus' heart for those he loves in the midst of hurting. So let's pick things up in John chapter 11, verse 1, where John writes this. He says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now here we meet these uh, sisters and this brother and they're introduced for the first time in John. And yet John kind of talks about them as people who are well known in the community that he was writing to. Verse 2 gives us a little bit of a hint as to why that is, as he talks about this Mary being the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That, that's something we're going to see actually in John chapter 12 come up, but it was an event that was so well known in Jesus's life that, that he was able to point to it before he even talked about it in his book. And these sisters have a, and, and, and Lazarus have a special relationship with Jesus, so much so that these sisters send word to Jesus. And how do they describe their brother? They say, Lord, the one you love is sick. And the assumption is that Jesus knows exactly who they're talking about. That they know that, that Jesus knows that they're talking about Lazarus. We go on to verse 4 and we see this. It says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Right here we see a picture of how this story will end. This story will end in God being glorified. It will end in God's son receiving glory as well. And I think this should, again, point our attention back there to that story from John chapter 9, whenever Jesus uh, took that question from his followers about who sinned, this man or his parents. And Jesus says in John 9 verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. Right here again, we see God at work in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering. And we see that Jesus is up to something. Now, verses five and six are, are kind of weird because they articulate something that seems a little bit backwards. See, verse five says, now Jesus loved Martha and her, sis, er, her sister and Lazarus. In verse six, the start there is where it gets kind of weird. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. It doesn't seem to make sense, right? Jesus loved these sisters and their brother. So when he heard that uh, this brother was sick, he waited two days before he went. Why? 
That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And just to let you know, I don't know that I have the right answer. But what I do know is that this tells us once again that that Jesus works on his own time. That he's walking in his father's plan and that in the midst of that, we can trust that he is working for our good as he is working for his glory. And while we may not have all the answers as to why, we can still trust him in the middle. We can still trust him in the process. Jesus loved this family, so he went to be with them. But his disciples don't really like this idea. You see, his disciples know that he's heading to Judea, right near or right where Jerusalem is found. And they know what happened last time Jesus went there. People tried to stone him. So when Jesus talks about, I'm headed to Judea, they're like, Jesus, that's where people try to kill you. Don't try to go there. All right, that's not a good idea. But Jesus says, hey, this is part of the plan. This is where we are headed. This is what we need to do next. And while it didn't make sense to his followers, that's exactly what they go on to do. Jesus tells them, hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And again, his disciples say, Jesus, that's a good thing. You see, whenever you're sick and you fall asleep, it helps your body heal. Jesus, why don't you get this? You created bodies, right? So then Jesus makes things really clear in verse 14. He says, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Again, there's a hint that there's something coming that's going to be good in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this pain. But let us go to him, he says. Then Thomas, um, also known as Doubting Thomas, and here it says also known as Didymus, which means twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So here we see this guy who's often known as Doubting Thomas taking a bold step saying, hey, if Jesus is marching to death, I'm marching with him. Disciples, you coming with me? This is where we need to go next. And so the disciples and Jesus head there. We're told in verse 17 that on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Right there in verse 17, we see something important about Lazarus at this point. We see that he has been in the tomb for four days. And this is important because of a common Jewish belief in that time. They believed that what would happen is when someone would die, the soul would come out of the body, but the soul would return to the body for three days, seeking to re-enter the body to experience life here again. But that on the fourth day, when the soul returned, it would see the, um, the, the coloring leaving the face and that the soul would then move on. And ultimately, this meant that all hope was lost. And we see this in Mary's response in verse 21. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Have you ever found yourself asking a similar question? Lord, if you'd been here... My marriage wouldn't have fallen apart or my parents' marriage wouldn't have fallen apart. Lord, if you'd been here, my my parents would still be here. Lord, if you'd been here, my child would still be here. Lord, if you'd been here, I wouldn't have lost my job. Lord, if you'd been here, things would have turned out different. 
Our discipleship pastor, Bill Altman, made a great point this week talking about this verse. He said, really, this is just a polite way of saying, why didn't you show up? And that's where Martha is whenever she realizes that four days have now passed and hope is lost. Verse 22, but I know she still knows something about Jesus, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, whenever Jesus said, your brother will rise again, Martha went into her categories in her brain for resurrection, which went to this common Jewish belief that that what was going to happen is at the end of time, God was going to bring about a new heaven and new earth. And whenever he did that, he was going to raise up all of his people from the Old Testament all the way up until that point. Throughout all history, all of his people were going to be raised. And she was saying, my brother's a good Jew. I know he's going to be raised again whenever that last day comes. But Jesus here begins to show her that that he has even better news. You see, Jesus isn't just pointing her to some event to come in the future. Rather, Jesus is pointing her to himself. And we see his response in verse 25 making this clear. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe not just in some event to come in the future, but do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that the one who believes in me will live even though they die? I think even today we can ask ourselves that question, do we believe? Not just that Jesus is coming in some day in the future, but that he is present in the midst of our hurting and in the midst of our pain. Do we believe this? Whether you're someone who's suffering now or you know someone who is suffering now, I think we see an important truth in this passage right here that in the midst of suffering and pain, it's oftentimes not some distant hope in the future that that we need to cling to by itself, but it's the fact that Jesus himself chooses to make himself present in the midst of our pain. It's not just some date to come in the future, but it is a person who is present in our hurting now that we can trust in. Martha expresses her belief in verse 27 as she says this, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. In the midst of the pain, we see an incredible thing that Jesus does. You see, in the midst of our pain, Jesus reveals his identity and power. And whenever Jesus reveals his identity and power, he shows that it's not just some abstract truth about being resurrection and life that is completely detached from our experience here and now, but he shows that it is good news for us in the midst of our hurting and in the midst of our pain. After Martha's statement of belief, she runs back to the house to go and get her sister Mary. She goes to Mary and says, hey, the teacher, Jesus, he, he's here and he wants to speak to you. And so Mary, who's surrounded by a group of people who are trying to comfort her in her mourning, she gets up and she takes off to go and see this Jesus. She takes off to go and see him. And whenever the people around her see him or see her take off, they, they go with her thinking that she's running to the tomb now to see her brother, to mourn at the tomb. 
Let's pick things up in verse 32 as we see this interaction between Mary and Jesus. It says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Again, have you ever asked that question? Lord, if you'd been here, that diagnosis would have came back different. Lord, if you'd been here, this hurt wouldn't be the same. Lord, if you'd been here, things would have turned out different. Again, we see the real and raw pain of a hurting sister. And yet we also see that Jesus can handle the raw and real hurt that she's experiencing. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Here we see Jesus described as being deeply moved in spirit. But the word used to translate there throughout Greek like history, both classical and even throughout scripture, this word always refers to anger or indignation or outrage. So the question we have here is what is it that drove Jesus to become outraged? What was the object of his anger or his outrage? In this passage, it seems to be some combination of sin, illness, death, and even unbelief. Why? Because these are all devastating reminders that we live in a fallen world. That things aren't the way they are supposed to be. So the presence of the impact and the effect of sin brings about indignation in Jesus. Commentator D.A. Carson writes this about this passage. He says, grief and compassion without outrage reduced to mere sentiment. While outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance. Now, those are a lot of meaningful words packed together. So let's read it again and go through slowly. He says, grief and compassion without outrage. So having grief and compassion without actually being driven to some sort of response is just mere sentiment. It's just wishful thinking towards someone or something else. While outrage, being driven to a response without feeling the grief and compassion like Jesus did, hardens into self-righteous arrogance. See, I think this is important for us to see because I think this is something we sometimes struggle with as a church in the West when we see the effect of sin and illness, yeah, whenever we see the effects of sin and illness, death, injustice, and even unbelief, it should not result in some sort of detached response where we just kind of move on and say, well, that's the way things are. Rather, as the people of God, whenever we see God's creation corrupted, it should well up a response in us where we say we're not okay with things being this way. This isn't the way God designed things to be and we should actually be driven to some sort of action. In verse 35, we see the powerful reaction that Jesus was driven to. John eleven thirty-five simply says this, Jesus wept. Jesus the son of God, the one who John tells us was with God in the beginning, who is God made flesh through whom God made all things weeps 
when he sees the hurt, whenever he sees the effect of sin. Jesus doesn't say anything. He just grieves with her. And I think we can learn a lot from Jesus's response here. You see, because oftentimes whenever we are faced with suffering and whenever we are faced with even death, we're often left speechless. But oftentimes as humans, we don't like to be left speechless. So we go on to say something anyways. It's not always the most helpful. I'm going to share a couple of examples from the the viewing with my dad. And these are not to bash the people who said these things. It's simply to share a couple of examples of people who I think were speechless, who chose to speak anyways. Okay, so the, the first guy comes through the line to comfort my family as we just lost my dad. And he comes up next to the casket and he says, boy, he looks good. Looks like he could sit right up and say hello. To which my response was, I hope he doesn't, right? I mean, like, that would, like, get me out of here. I love my dad and all, but if he sits up, I'm running out of this place. And this person, again, was well-intentioned, but it wasn't really the words I needed to hear in that moment. The other person came up, and thankfully they talked to my brother and not to me because I would have had a more morbid response to my brother. He's a little bit more mild-mannered, so he just kind of nodded when they said this. But the, the, the guy came up and asked the question of my brother. He said, so how big of an aneurysm was it anyways? Now, my response, because my brother is right next to the casket, would have been, big enough. Okay. But again, that's a little bit morbid. I hope like that's where I was in the midst of my hurting and grief though. I wasn't going to be able to probably respond much better than that. You see in the midst of hurting and in the midst of pain, it's okay to be speechless. I think Jesus shows us a couple of great responses whenever we walk with people or even we ourselves are walking through suffering. Let's just talk about four great responses. One, I'm sorry. You don't have to add a whole lot more to that other than simply saying, I'm I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry that life's going to look so much different now. The second one, point them to Jesus. Say, I know it may not feel like it right now, but Jesus desires to draw near to the brokenhearted. So I'm praying that that's something you experience now, even if it's not your experience right this moment. I'm praying that for you. A third thing, weep with them. If you don't have that relationship to be the one weeping actually in the room with them or you're like me and like tears just don't come. Like I go to funerals and I can't find tears. I'm like, I wish I could cry with you, but they, they can't come in. What I mean by this is at least allow yourself the opportunity to feel the hurt and the pain that someone else is feeling and, and let them know that you're with them. A fourth response would be to simply sit with them. And let them know that they are not alone. Jesus shows us a lot about how to respond to suffering. And one of the most incredible truths I think we see in the gospel of John as a whole is seen right here as we see this about Jesus. That Jesus identifies with and feels the pain of those he loves. Again, this is the same Jesus who helped speak the world into existence. And yet he identifies with and feels the pain of those he loves. Are you hurting today? Jesus doesn't look at you and say, suck it up. 
Things will get better. Don't you know what's to come in the future? Why don't you just get over yourself and press on? No, Jesus's two responses so far in this passage have been, hey, look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, will still have life. And then here, tears. That's Jesus's response in the midst of the hurting, in the midst of the pain. Now, whenever the Jews who were there saw this, some of the Jews saw this and said, look at how he loved him. Look at how he loved this man. And yet others saw Jesus and said, isn't this the same Jesus who opened the eyes of the blind man? If he could do that, couldn't he have prevented this man from dying? If he really loved him, wouldn't he have done that? Again, we're left to trust that Jesus is at work in the midst of our hurting, in the midst of our pain, and that we can trust him in the midst of that. And see what we have here in, in verses 38 and 39 as we, Jesus moves closer to the tomb. We're told this as Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been dead for four days. Remember that word translated there in verse 38 as deeply moved is pointing to an anger or an indignation. Again, Jesus's response to suffering and death is not stoic and it's not reserved. Why? Well, I think another thing we need to see here is we're, we're calling this whole series here Turning Point, and we're calling it Turning Point for a reason because this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. And I think in this moment, one thing we know about Jesus is Jesus knows that as he takes one more step towards doing something about the death of Lazarus, he's actually taking one more step towards his own death. See, in this moment, as Jesus takes a step to do something about the suffering that Lazarus and his sisters were feeling, he's also taking one more step on his mission to do something about suffering and death once for all. It seems like Jesus is reminded in this moment that overturning suffering and death will result in him bearing suffering and dying in our place. And here we see another powerful point about Jesus and the way that he loves his people. And it's this, that Jesus's love drives him to show power over death. Jesus's love is shown not just in identifying with or acknowledging our hurt and our pain, but by acting to engage with our pain. And this is seen ultimately in his willingness to step toward the cross and suffer on the cross for us. Let's pick things up here in verse 40 as Jesus is now at the tomb. It says, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
Here we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and we get a picture of what he was talking about back there in verse four when he said, this sickness will not end in death, but this sickness will end in God being glorified that the son may be glorified through it. Jesus shows his greatness and his glory in the midst of suffering. John stresses throughout the gospel of John about this idea of Jesus being transcendent, that he is the one who is above all things, that he has been with God since the beginning, that he is the one through whom all things were created, that he is the one who has power over even death. And yet in this moment, we see that Jesus is also imminent, that he also draws close to people in their pain, that he steps towards the pain of those he loves. And again, it's ultimately seen in his willingness to take a step towards the cross and ultimately defeat death once and for all in his resurrection. See, Lazarus being raised from the dead should point us forward to Jesus's resurrection because the sad reality is, and again, this may catch us off guard, but Lazarus ended up going back into the grave at some point. You see, Lazarus being raised in this story is incredible and beautiful, but this wasn't the final resurrection. But Jesus' resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, is the guarantee that all of God's people from all time, including Lazarus, will be raised up to experience life in new bodies with him forever. But while we have this hope in the future, we also have another hope even now. And that's Jesus. You see, a question that I think we need to ask is what is more surprising in this story? God raising a man from the dead or a God who actually chooses to weep with you even when he knows the end of the story? See, that's an incredible truth about Jesus. Both of these things are amazing. But in this story, it's highlighted that Jesus understands our hurting and our pain. He understands your deepest trials. He understands when your heart is troubled and he is moved by your pain. He mourns when you mourn. He holds you up and he weeps alongside you in the midst of your pain. He doesn't stand off in the distance. But his compassion for us wouldn't mean much if he didn't have his power. If he didn't have the power to do something about sin, to do something to offer forgiveness, if he didn't have the power over death, the power to make us whole. So let us not forget what it is that keeps us from being made whole. It's the presence of sin. And yet Jesus looks at us. He says, I see your pain. I see your hurt. I even see your sin. But he calls to us and says, come to me and find rest. Come to me. I am the resurrection and the life. Come to me and experience this life that will go well beyond what you experience here. And the question for us today is, will we answer his call? Are we willing to step towards him? Are we willing to see him as the one who truly is the resurrection and the life? Are we willing to see him as the one who truly does identify with and walk in and through suffering with us? Are we willing to see that he is the one who loved us so much that his love drove him to action to do something, not just about Lazarus's death, but about death once for all? 
Will we receive him? Will we step towards him? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this powerful story. God, it's amazing to me that you would take on flesh at all. And yet you chose to not only take on flesh, but to step into hurting and painful situations and to love your people. God, to use hurt and to use pain for your people's good and to glorify you, God, we love to see that. God, right now, if there's anyone in this room or watching online, God, who is walking through a season of suffering and pain right now, God, I pray that you will draw near, that they will see just how imminent, just how close you are drawing to them in the midst of the pain. God, we thank you for doing something about sin and suffering once for all. And we long for the day that we get to experience that for good. But today, we thank you for being present in the midst of our hurt. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.